If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you first come to the British Museum, you think it's, it's mummies, it's tombs, it's statues. This is the other side, um, and it gives you a feeling that history isn't always written by the greats um, and by the authority figures. It's, it's everyone's. That was Ian Hislop talking to us about his new exhibition on the history of descent. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. A few days ago, a new exhibition opened at the British Museum, entitled I Object, which chronicles the history of descent from ancient times until the present day. The objects in the exhibition were all chosen by Ian Hislop, editor of Private Eye magazine and a BBC broadcaster, perhaps best known for being a long-standing panellist on Have I Got News For You. Ian was assisted on the exhibition by British Museum curator... Tom Hockenhull. And both Ian and Tom sat down with our staff writer Ellie Cawthorn to explore some of the subjects that feature in the displays. Today on the podcast I'm at the British Museum and I'm joined by Tom Hockenhull, who's a curator here, and Ian Hislop, who is of course a writer, broadcaster and the editor of Private Eye. Tom and Ian are co-curating a new exhibition here, I Object, which looks at um, 180 objects which challenge, mock, undermine, question the status quo throughout world history, which is also accompanied by a book and a Radio 4 series. So, to start us off, could one of you tell us where did the idea from, for this exhibition first come from and what did you want to achieve from it? Um, well, I should say, yes, the idea was mine and it's marvellous, um, but unfortunately that isn't true. Um, the idea was uh, the previous director, uh, Neil McGregor, um, and he approached me and he said, a lot of people have the idea that the British Museum is a, essentially a, a collection of the narrative of, of the rich and powerful and uh, the museum's stuffed with their tributes and statues and weapons and jewellery and pots and what about everyone else? Um, is there anyone questioning any of this? And I thought this was a brilliant idea. So I said, well, yes, yeah, I'd love to do that. And then he said, we'll obviously have to give you a co-curator who knows what they're talking about. Um, and he was unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was Tom. Um, but the great thing is, is um, Tom's from Coins and Medals. And almost the first thing you'll notice about the exhibition is just how much dissent is channelled onto coins and banknotes. Partly because it's so easy, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's the way to easily put a message into circulation and, and crucially it's, a, it's a, a means by which to 
spread it beyond your closest circle, your friends, your, your allies even, to strangers. So that's one way in which you can uh, circulate very overt, obvious mm. acts of, of subversion. And there's everything in there from there's, you know, hang the Pope to uh, votes for women. And it's, you know, and, and even cruder messages on some of the banknotes, which, uh, I mean, it's just amazing how consistent in history um, it's used as a way of just saying, well, I can, I can put this message in. Um, can you give us an idea of the the vast range of objects that you're covering here? Because it's not just banknotes, is it? There's a there's a huge swathe of different stuff. Yeah, I mean we've been into every single curatorial collection um, here at the museum. Bear in mind we have approximately nine million objects, so it was quite a challenge to kind of whittle it down. I mean we're a museum of world cultures, and and we tell you know the story of those cultures through our objects, and. As Ian said, you know, a lot, a lot of people walk through the door and, 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 and look at the kind of the, the, the big monumental stone that we have and see them as, correctly, as items which support, prop up um, the status quo concepts of authority. So it's about trying to, you know, dig beneath the surface and look at the people who are actually laughing at that authority. And there's and everything from ancient Egypt um, Babylon to the Hong Kong protests a couple of years ago and the Trump pussy hat. I mean, literally, it's it's everywhere and always um, uh, the exhibition, which is quite ambitious. There's a lot of stuff from China and there's um, stuff from Afghanistan and there's stuff from India. Um, there's a big geographical as well as a big historical range. So uh, there is a vast range of stuff. It covers about three and a half thousand years of history which in British museum terms actually is it's kind of quite modern. Um, our oldest object is sort of half a million years old. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you, know, you, you do need a little bit of context in order to be able to appreciate why an object might be in some way, you know, disobedient. So you mentioned three and a half thousand years. Can you tell us about the earliest kind of evidence of descent that you have uncovered? Um, that would probably be um, an ostracon, which is a sort of limestone or pottery fragment um, painted with... Uh... Ian, do you want to describe it? Um, yes, I mean, um, the oldest object is an Egyptian object and um, the curator was um, uh, very keen to tell me, um, because this hasn't been displayed before, because it's a slightly pornographic image. Well, it's a totally pornographic image. And um, I said, why... why? The British Museum not displayed this before. And she said, well, it was found in the same year as Tutankhamun's tomb, so there were other quite exciting finds that year. So I said, oh, all right, that's a reasonable excuse. But actually, um, this item is just one of um, a series of drawings found by the workmen in the Valley of the, the Workers, which is right next to the Valley of the Kings, where all the tombs are. And essentially, you've got all the people who spent all day drawing very formal funereal art, um, relaxing in the evening, just drawing rubbish um, on um, uh, small bits of science to amuse each other. But actually, they, what they do is they reproduce variants of the stuff they're doing all day, but in rather more irreverent form. So it's, uh, um, I, th I think it's, it's terrific stuff. And I love the fact that it was found on, in an enormous rubbish tip. So you can imagine the archaeologist, someone saying, well, we found Tutankhamun's tomb, and think, yeah, we found this rubbish tip uh, full of old stuff the workmen have thrown away. Um, but actually, for this exhibition, that's more interesting. 
how would this um, exhibition give us a different view of world history than one we might get from walking around the museum generally? I think you might get, um, again, when you first come to the British Museum, you think it's, it's mummies, it's tombs, it's statues. Um, this is the other side. Um, and it gives you a feeling that history isn't always written um, um, by the greats um, and by the authority figures. It's, it's everyone's. I mean, I, I would say, I would use an object perhaps to, um, t- as an example, the Mary Head of Augustus that people may be familiar with. They may have walked past it in the, gal- in the galleries. It's a bronze over life-size head of Augustus. Now, we know Augustus was great because he tells us so in his autobiography, <laughs> but other people didn't think so. His enemies thought otherwise, and so they took this, they, inv- they attacked a garrison, ripped the head off the statue, dragged it hundreds of miles south and buried it under a victory shrine so that people would trample on the defeated enemy as they entered. And... I think that's a wonderful example of just showing that, well, actually, you know, people do all think differently. You know, the, the, you might think that one person, your leader is great, but then there'll always, always be somebody who thinks otherwise. And they, they turn the head of Augustus upside down. They literally turn the world upside down. I mean, Tom wanted to bury it in the floor, and then some of the other curators thought that this is quite a valuable object. Um, well, it, was, it was more about the floor, actually. They said it's a grade one listed building. I wasn't allowed to dig it up. <laughs> I think one of the things I found most interesting about the selection of stuff is that it's not all over political protest, is it? There's a lot of kind of different forms of dissent. I think I think there's that spirit in all of us that likes to be perhaps being a little bit anarchic. And so it was, it was a, just as often about trying to to find those acts throughout history. So there might not be world-changing acts of resistance, but we found those as well. It was more about finding, you know, th- those little things that people do, you know, every day throughout their lives in order just to make themselves feel a little bit better. So, you know, they see some kind of, they have, there's a law, there's a rule, you know, it might be quite a small, you know, insignificant one, and then they, they try and challenge it and they try and, you know, sort of subvert the process in that way, whether that's going against their king, their queen, or their boss, some, some kind of symbol of authority, foreign power, for example, yeah, anyone. And I, the, the turning the world upside down thing is sort of, Tom and I slightly disagree on this. He thinks it's a way of controlling dissent. I, I think it's a way of, of accepting that there's nothing you can do about it. So on the, the Mexican Day of the Dead, um, which is fantastic, um, papier-mâché objects in which the workers essentially um, laugh at their bosses by carrying skeleton versions of them around. This is done as a religious festival. So you can't really stop it because it's the Day of the Dead. It's, uh, you know, it's all Hallows' Even. It's a, sort of, it's a proper festival. But what they're doing is saying up yours. Um, here's Uncle Sam. Here's the factory owner. Here's the factory owner's wife. Um, you're all skeletons, you're all going to die, however powerful you think you are. You know, that's what's lurking here. And I love that. And I love that feeling of there's a chance to do it. Um, uh, Even though it's within, you know, it's a certain day you can do it, you can't do it all day. Um, You can't do it on other days. But that, turning the world upside down, the Mexican dead, the dead, the charivari, the, you know, carnival in Europe, a lot of cultures do it. Um, and it seems to be, a, I don't know, a, a leak of pressure um, that won't um, be clamped down. 
Yes, and it, it does seem to be the case that the more conservative, the more restrictive the society, the more that safety valve is kind of needed. Yeah. I mean, there are these wonderful um, shadow puppets from the Ottoman Empire. Um, they're a bit like Punch and Judy shows, and they're, they were you know, performed in the coffee houses in the evening. And there are these two characters, Karagos and Hachibat, and they kind of argue and they fight. But what the other thing they do is they talk about the kind of the news of the day and local local affairs. And, you know, they they exist effectively to mock the Sultan's family, his advisors, his generals. Um, and it was kind of tolerated, but up to a point. You know, so you hear these these, you know, these periods when they really clamp down on, on the shadow theatre and stop them from, from performing. So there's always that line, that boundary that people seem to be pushing against, particularly with the more performative acts of dissent, that then, you know, they cross that line. They might not even realise they've crossed the line and suddenly, you know, they're being banged up or they're being banned from performing or, or worse. On your point about uh, mockery there, a lot of the objects in here, they rely on satire, mockery, or, or often just toilet humour, to be honest. Um, what role do you think... You that... say that as though that isn't a very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> what role do you think that humour plays in protest and dissent and why is it such a kind of um, evocative way of getting these messages across? I, obviously, uh, there's a lot of humour in it and there are a lot of, quite a lot of black humour in dissent. Essentially, it's sort of saying, this is pretty grim, but I'm going to laugh anyway. Um, I always consider that an act of bravery in itself, not to be depressed, not to be downtrodden, but just to be able to say, well, I think, that's quite funny. Um, or I think you're quite ludicrous, i.e. you're not scared, you know, you're you're amused. And that's a sort of, that is a sort of human characteristic. Um, I mean, there's some, I mean, the range of dissent um, in the exhibition means there's some deadly serious stuff. You know, if someone puts, you know, no to home rule, um, there aren't any jokes there. Um, but, say, there's a fantastic British colonial period print of, of Kali, the goddess, and in India, and she's traditionally portrayed with a severed heads. And you look at this print and you think, oh, yes, there's Carly. And then you look closely and all the heads are Europeans <laughs> with large moustaches. And you think, yes, that's fairly clear what you're saying there. And they, I mean, they tried to prosecute it, didn't they? Oh, they tried to suppress it. I mean, one of the most instructive objects for me um, as, as a reference point for humour is a standard print of, um, of Louis XVI and somebody has put a red, a red um, cap of liberty, the bonnet rouge, uh, stamped it over him. And that's a stark reminder to me that, you know, the first act, if you like, of bringing down the monarch wasn't to, you know, challenge his authority, it was to start ridiculing him. Mm. And that ended in an execution. So, you know, so it, it's, it's that first moment when you, when you start to question, well, is that person as great as they say or they think they are? And usually, not always, but usually that starts with, with a joke, a bit of humour. And it's a very strong visual image. I mean, I come from a very wordy tradition. One of the great things about this exhibition is just seeing how effective the pictures are. And it's, you know, it's a pompous court portrait of Louis XVI, and they've just put, what is in fact quite a silly hat on him. Um, so it's not the crown, it's not, you know, this is the, the symbol of state, it's quite a silly hat. And it makes me laugh. And um, I realise just, just how much you can do by, you know, um, a visual statement or a creative statement as opposed to endless words. Um,
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I think some of the most effective and, and really the cruelest um, comic portrayals in here are the Georgian satirists yeah. that we have, such as James Gilray and Cruikshank. They, they really shape, in, in a way, the way that we think about that whole era. Um, they're so iconic. Do you think that that was a, a golden age of satire? I do, um, yes. I think it was absolutely extraordinary. Um, and not only did they shape the way we deal with a lot of public life, they won a lot of the battles that meant we are allowed to say and and react in certain ways to authority in this particular bit of the West at this particular time. So I'm always... I look at their stuff with sort of um, much envy. <laughs> I think <laughs> how good they are. Um, but also I think, well, you know, this is amazing that you um, you enabled us to be able to carry on doing this. Because you look at a lot of the rest... Of the exhibition at most places in most times dissent is very very difficult to do and very very dangerous <laughs> um and i'm grateful for that yeah i mean it's, it's, it was a golden age in as much as there were perfect there's a perfect storm of circumstances i suppose which enabled the production of very high-end caricatures a, a very very small pool um but nonetheless highly talented um, group of artists who were willing to lower themselves to the level of producing caricatures and also a monarchy that was absolutely despised. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, what you, that's all you need, really. Oh, and I suppose also a, um, a government which is supposedly attempting to uphold the principles of a free and liberal democracy. So, you know, the principles of free speech, um, which, you know, um, which you know, they did try to suppress the prince. Um, but it was kind of impossible, really. You know, in the end, the, all they could really do was just pay them off. Um, you know, so so I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think that you don't always get those circumstances. You know, you need that certain things to happen and come together at certain times for the production of that kind of vicious satire. I mean, they are they are vicious. I mean, guilt. Yes. I don't think anyone's been that unkind about Simonic before or since, or indeed anyone else. And <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier about the power of images. Um, why do you think that material objects in an exhibition like this, why is that a good way to look at the history of dissent? Well, A, because that's what the British Museum has, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, our object, so that's quite good. But also because it takes so much effort to make something. Um, you know, a lot of dissent is, you know, conversation or performance or um, the written word, which often you need footnotes for or you don't know what's going on. Um, so... The objects themselves are, I think, a good way of looking at it, partly because they're, um, if they last, it's because they were effective. I mean, even something I was just thinking about the pussy hat, which is a very good visual pun. Um, Perhaps you could just explain for yeah. people who might not know what it is. It's um, the hat, but it was originally worn on the Women's March against Trump, but then it was adopted by lots of people. And it's, it's, a, it's a hat that you know, makes... You look like a pussycat, it's got ears and it's pink. And it sort of, it looks jolly and um, um, inoffensive. 
Um, but then it is a pussy had, and it's a reference to Trump's attitude to women. It's a sort of anti-misogyny protest, and it's sort of, it is a brilliant visual pun, but it's also a very pleasing symbol. So it's sort of creating a material object like that is much more effective than 100 posters saying we hate Trump. Um, and obviously it's incredibly irritating for Trump because every time anyone's got one on or refers to it, it's attacking him in an area where he's very, very vulnerable. Um, and so the material object is, in effect, more effective um, than a lot of verbal or um, other means. And it succeeds, as do many objects um, in the exhibition, um, and the most effective objects are those in which they manage to condense all of those sort of complex notions of politics, nationhood, um, you know, symbols of, of, of resistance, I suppose, into one iconic shape, colour. I mean, flags do it anyway. You know, yeah, all, the, all those, those notions of nationalism and patriotism effectively turned into a little rectangle of colours, yep. you know. And the best objects of resistance do exactly that. You know, you, you, you get, you know, the kefir in, um, in, in Palestine, you know, where this, this kind of nomadic... Um, headwear then just you know is is then used for the um, um, for the independence movement. So you know it, 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 when that happens, and, and particularly the further back you go, you know, it can be sometimes quite hard to kind of uncover these acts. When you find something that really um, embodies all of those notions, then I think that's very powerful. If you look at what well, I'm one of the last experts, which is the yellow umbrella, which is used in the democracy protests. Um, the thing I love about that is it's just when the protesters say, and they say, what are you doing? They say, it's just an umbrella, it's just a yellow umbrella. Um, but when there are thousands of them, it's fantastic as a sort of visual display. But, you know, they say, yeah, what's the problem? That's one thing that I found really fascinating, this ability of a lot of the objects. If you just looked at them in, in the rest of the collections, you might think, oh, it's a nice Chinese print, or, yeah. oh, it's a salt cellar. And you wouldn't, um, they have a lot of hidden meanings, quite a lot of them. I mean, we, we, I would say probably most of the objects in the exhibition are in some, in some way um, have some kind of concealed element to them, um, whether that be an image which becomes an allegory for something else, um, literally, you know, words hidden on objects, um, or, or, for example, items of clothing, when we discussed the pussy hat, uh, but more subtle acts where, you know, just the very sort of way in which you wear something or the act of wearing it, is some kind of act of resistance. Um, I mean, I, I like there's the Stonyhurst salt, which is a, um, one of my favourite items, which is sort of, again, it's, it's a highly elaborate, bejeweled salt cellar. And it comes from a period where um, Catholicism was banned and the rites and rituals and artefacts of Catholicism were all banned. So a Catholic family has got this on the table and says it's a salt cellar, and it clearly isn't. It's quite clearly a vessel for containing the host in the sacrament in, in the Catholic Mass. And uh, the curator, who's very good, and sort of looks at it and says, well, it's got red beads on it, which are quite clearly um, Christ's blood. It's made out of rock salt, which is a symbol for Christ. And then she looked at it and she said, God, the amber beads, they're actually in the shape of a cross. And she'd seen this hundreds of times, but it was the first time she'd noticed it on the outside of this thing. So basically... This is a piece of tableware in a Catholic family, which is basically saying, we're Catholics. Um, 
and uh, we still um, believe in all this stuff. But as far as you're concerned, it's a salt cellar. Um, and would you like some salt? And I love that idea that it's sort of what we called hiding in plain sight. Just it's an object that um, you've given another meaning to. You also made perhaps a brave decision to include Banksy's Peckham Rock, which is actually a parody of the museum itself. Could you tell us a bit about that and why you thought it was important to include it? Well, the, the remit from the beginning, bear in mind, I mean, dissent is a huge chaotic subject for anyone to tackle. So very early on, we decided with this exhibition, let's just focus on one institutional collection, the British Museum. Let's look at what's in our collection and what that can tell us about the history of people disobeying. Um, However, we decided to make an exception with the Banksy because um, in 2005, he installed it in one of our, in one of our galleries, in the Romano British um, Gallery, um, where it was up. Now, we're in dispute on this. The British Museum's <laughs> line is it was up for three days. Um, Ian, um, I don't know what his source is, but he thinks it was up for much longer. Yeah, no, I just made it up. <laughs> I think it was up for weeks. But I mean, even three days, you get a lot of footfall here, so... It's a lot of eyes yeah, on yeah. it. <laughs> and, and, and we were only actually alerted to it on being on display when Banksy announced it on his own website, um, at which point um, our gallery managers um, ran up to where it was and hoiked it off the wall, closing the gallery in the process. Could you give us a little description of it for people who might have not seen it? Well, it shows early man heading to the out-of-town hunting grounds. He's pushing a shopping trolley. Um, <laughs> and because um, Banksy installed a fake label. Yeah. And it looks very good. I mean, it, it kind of looks legit and everything. It's in keeping with the other museum exhibits. Um, he calls himself Banksimus Maximus on the, uh, on the label. Uh, an obscure artist whose work is now largely forgotten, I think he said. Yes. Predicting his own future. It doesn't seem likely at this stage. But, I mean, we thought, and I certainly thought that almost the punchline to the exhibition. It's the last exhibit you see. should be someone having a laugh at the British Museum. But again, I mean, Banksy did it very famously, but there's, I think, an equally funny um, exhibit from um, the turn of the century, isn't it? Yeah, uh, the, yeah. the Yemeni object in which the British Museum has bought... In good faith. In good faith, these marvellous Yemeni um, crouching figures. Um, and it turns out that this one is is a fake. And the figure isn't crouching. He's quite clearly sitting on a toilet. <laughs> and someone has made it purely to laugh uh, at the British Museum and they bought it and it's sitting there. Um, and it's been labelled for a very long time. <laughs> seated uh, Yemeni statue, I think. Seated Yemeni statue. And I'm afraid it isn't. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, the view that is, is, you know, that would... I can't envisage another exhibition ever where that object, it's a registered object in the collections, you know, we bought it, where that would be displayed, no. you know, and yet here it is, it's given pride of place at the end of the exhibition. It's finally getting its moment in the sun. It's moment <laughs> of glory, yes. Um, as you mentioned with the pussy hat, the exhibition does bring things right up to date uh, to contemporary times. Why, again, was that, was that an important thing for you to do when you had thousands of years of history to draw on? Why did you want to make sure it was um, brought right up to date? To show it goes on, pure and simple. To show that people are still engaging with material culture. I say there's a, sort of a curatorial perspective, but the fact that people are, what I mean is people are still making, wrecking, defacing. Mm. You know, they're, they're still, despite the fact that the social media, that they're, they're in theory, all these ways in which you can disseminate your discontent, people are still resorting to the old methods. You know, they're still wearing clothing that for them represents, you know, an allegiance. 
Mm. Yeah, I would say that's exactly right because, you know, the first question is, well, surely everyone does all this on Twitter now. Um, and I'm saying, well, they don't. And I'm, I'm guessing no one's going to read your Twitter feed in a thousand years, um, but they might be looking at something you made. So we've talked about quite a lot of the exhibits, but I wonder whether you two have a couple of personal favourites each. So um, my favourite is it's, it's quite a it's a lovely example of hiding in plain sight, um, where this um, dish painter in 16th century Italy uh, painted these beautiful uh, Mallorca dishes uh, with these lovely allegorical scenes. And what he's done is he's included basically a pornographic sketch in it. Um, from a very, very well-known band series of erotic prints called Imodi, The Positions. It's like the Renaissance Kama Sutra. And to disguise this act, what he's done is he's painted the figures clothed. Um, and the, the, the figure it's representing was the French king who'd been recently defeated in battle. So there's a kind of political statement there as well. And I just like the idea of his, you know, his wealthy patrons sitting down for their, their soup and, you know, uh, and whatever, and, and, and having a good old laugh at the, the, the dinner place they're eating off. And I think mine are, are the, these um, doors from um, Nigeria, printed by the, I think, uh, Yoruba is what we call them, but I think Yoruba is, is, is the pronunciation that we're meant to, anyway. Take it either way. Um, but anyway, these doors, and they were um, beautifully carved wooden doors um, from uh, Nigeria, and um, they uh, were exhibited as part of um, a British Empire... Um, exhibition at Wembley in the 1930s. So someone had gone around saying, let's have the best of all these chaps in the colonies. Um, and those doors look good. But actually on the doors are some very unflattering portraits of British colonial officers uh, on motorbikes, which they've sort of hidden in the sort of, well, not really hidden really, but they're there, but in the grand scheme of this carving. And I, I grew up in Nigeria and, and um, in that area. And um, uh, my parents had a lot of sort of carved heads and sort of fabrics from that period, which we brought back to this country. Um, and it was just sort of a great um, pleasure, really, to see these doors um, and have it explained to me that the slightly ludicrous figures on them were, were me <laughs> and us. <laughs> and they're massive, aren't they? I mean, yeah, they're two metres, they're about two metres tall and two metres wide. And it's just, it's just amazing to think that this passed completely unnoticed when they yeah. were including the British Empire exhibition. Yeah, <laughs> smuggled them in. Um, so to finish up, if people come to the exhibition or they get the book or listen to the series, what do you want them to leave with? I want to go the cheering idea that questioning what you've been told and questioning the, the official narrative is a very old um, human quality. Um, people have been doing it for a long time and it is um, something positive. Yeah, it might not change anything, but it'll make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> That was Ian Hislop and Tom Hockenhull. I Object, Ian Hislop's Search for Dissent, is running at the British Museum until the 20th of January 2019. And you can find out more info and book tickets at britishmuseum.org. Meanwhile, Ian's three-part BBC Radio 4 series, also entitled I Object, is available to hear at BBC iPlayer Radio. And there is also a British Museum book to accompany the exhibition. Again, entitled I Object, it's co-written by Ian and Tom and out now published by Thames and Hudson. Now, before we go, I'd like to give a mention to the Science Focus podcast, 
which is produced by our friends at BBC Focus magazine. Their latest episode, available to download now, looks at how modern science could help to solve the 19th century Jack the Ripper murders. If that piques your interest, then do seek it out on iTunes, Acast and other podcast providers, as well as on sciencefocus.com. And that is all for today, but we'll be back on Thursday to take a wide-ranging look at the history of Europe. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 